If you will, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 6, and we'll push all the way through chapter 3, verse 9 today. It's a longer text than what we've been handling in 1 Corinthians thus far, but I trust that God will aid us this morning. I want to read a portion of that, not the entire text. We will walk through all of it together this morning, but let me just read a portion of that and then pray again for the preaching of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spirit, excuse me, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. Let's pray. Father, as has been prayed several times today already, we, we do pray for this time as we open your word that you would indeed be gracious to us, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray for the preaching of your word this morning, that it would not come simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this, in Jesus' name, amen. Paul introduces two problems in his letter to the church of Corinth that we want to draw our attention to in order for us to understand the appeals that he'll make to us today in our text. The two problems are this. Let's mark these down so that we can follow his line of thinking. Problem number one was the inability of the world to understand the gospel. The inability of the world to understand the gospel. And problem number two is this. The immaturity of the saints to apply the gospel. The immaturity of the saints to apply the gospel. So the world's inability to understand the gospel and the saints' immaturity to apply the gospel. The inability of the world to understand the gospel is made plain in 1 Corinthians 1.18, which we've already touched in a previous sermon. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, there's only one message being preached there, the cross, but there's two outcomes. It's either foolishness or power, depending on the recipient. And the immaturity of the saints to apply the gospel is stated in 1 Corinthians 1.10. 1 
where Paul begins his exhortation. He says, now I exhort you, brethren, speaking to the saints, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. The divisions that Paul speaks about in verse 10 of chapter 1 aren't the actual problem here. The divisions were the fruit of their spiritual immaturity. Their problem was immaturity. They lacked unity because of misapplications of the gospel. And Paul spells out the solution for both of these problems at the beginning of chapter 2, which Nathan had the privilege of preaching last week, when Paul says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The pure, or the way Hunter said it, how did you say when you were speaking of uh, untainted? I, I appreciated the word that you used. Unadulterate, unadulterated gospel, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, is the solution to the problems that Paul is addressing to the church of Corinth. And as Nathan pointed out last week, the aim of Paul's coming in his weakness and the message, which was the cross, Jesus Christ crucified, encourage people's faith to rest entirely on the power of God. That was his hope. To do so, Paul will use two sets of contrasts to distinguish between today and today's text. He'll use two sets of contrasts to distinguish between believers and unbelievers. We'll see that in chapter 2. And then the spiritually mature and the spiritually immature. And we'll see that in chapter 3. Well, I want us to see as we begin to push through the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, really two types of wisdom. That contrast between believers and unbelievers. The, the wisdom that believers possess and the wisdom that unbelievers possess. And Paul puts this contrast in terms of those who believe the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God. And though Paul just stated in the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that he's not coming. Now, these are Paul's words. He says, I'm not coming with superiority of speech or of wisdom. All right? Listen to Paul's language there. He says, I'm not coming with superiority of speech or of wisdom. And he says, I'm not coming in persuasive words of wisdom. It almost sounds like he's speaking negatively about wisdom. But I want you to see what he says beginning in today's text, verse 6. This is how it reads. Yet, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. By mature, here in verse 6, Paul's not referring to an elite group of Christians who have this secret knowledge of deeper truths, though some people have sought to teach this throughout history. But rather, he's speaking to those who believe in Christ Jesus and Him crucified and live upon that reality. That's what a mature saint is, who believes in Jesus Christ and him crucified and lives that out. So he says, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, <clears throat> if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Well, I want to draw our attention in those six verses, five verses, the wisdom of men. What does Paul mean when he talks about the wisdom of men or the wisdom of this age? According to the text, the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of men is a passing wisdom. It has an appeal to the people of its day, but it lacks depth. It can't be tested in the past to the future. It won't pass the test of time. The rulers of each age to whom Christ has not been revealed will push some agenda that they truly believe is newly discovered wisdom. See, the church at Corinth was living in a society that prized philosophy. They they took great joy and pride in their philosophies, what they perceived to be their wisdom, their human wisdom. The pervading wisdom of Jesus' day proved to be ignorance because the world in their wisdom tried to do away with Jesus who opposed them. So as Jesus is opposing their wisdom, in their wisdom, they try to get rid of Jesus. Listen to this. And they do so, sort of, by crucifying him. Right? They crucify him. When, in fact, as they carry out this crucifixion, they're carrying out the very will of God by his predetermined plan. So you tell me whose wisdom is superior. Their wisdom and trying to eliminate a man who opposes their wisdom, when in actuality, as they, in their wisdom, are trying to carry out their wisdom, are carrying out the wisdom of God. Acts 2.23 gives us a good picture of this. This man, speaking of Jesus, capital M-A-N, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Instead of crucifying someone who challenged their wisdom, they killed the Lord of glory himself. Paul says the crucifixion of Jesus was evidence that they did not understand the wisdom of God. They had no clue what they were doing. They thought they were wise, but they were ignorant. Each generation believes that they've discovered some new wisdom that previous generations simply hadn't been enlightened to. And the sad truth is, They're only regurgitating the same old lies, the same old stale, burnout wisdom. Our current generation is certainly victim to this. We could go on and on. I won't try to do so this morning, believing that they've discovered new wisdom in our generation. One of the ways that that's evidenced is the gender revolution that we are suffering through telling themselves that gender doesn't matter, defying the laws of God and nature and abandoning all science and reason to carry out this warped agenda. And they call it wisdom. They think they've been enlightened. Our current American generation believes that in order to give rights to people, 
They have the right to kill unwanted children at any stage of life, including birth, after birth. The next, the next logical step to that kind of wisdom is you can murder anybody at any age for any selfish reason. It just goes hand in hand with what we know has been celebrated and heralded as wisdom in this day and age. Even the most brilliant minds of today or any time in the past with the most well-intentioned motives, their wisdom is birthed from the heart and mind of mere men. It's limited. It's ultimately incapable of conceiving the wisdom that can only be revealed by the mind of God. That's what the wisdom of men is. Put simply, it's ignorance. It's foolishness. But the wisdom of God that we find in these five verses is quite different. The wisdom of God is not from human intelligence. True wisdom, God's wisdom, as verse 7 tells us, is rooted in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The message that Paul just emphasized in the previous verses. The wisdom of God is understood only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you're not looking at Christ and Him crucified, you have no chance of gaining wisdom. Without a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, there is no wisdom. You can have knowledge of Jesus and still not have wisdom, but a saving knowledge of Jesus, now there, that's where wisdom is. God's wisdom is not merely some philosophy or some scientific theory, but rather God's wisdom is birthed from the loving heart of God himself and is accompanied, listen to this, with power. True wisdom comes not from something the eyes can take in or that ears can hear as he refers back to Isaiah or even that the heart can conceive. No human faculties alone can obtain such wisdom. We just can't get there on our own. You can put the best of the best together and we can't get there. True wisdom can only come from the Spirit of God. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you can't possess true wisdom. But... If you have been given the Holy Spirit, you do possess true wisdom. And you will demonstrate your wisdom by loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I want to draw attention to two very important phrases found in the text that I think help us understand how we receive this wisdom. If there's this human wisdom that we are defining as ignorance and there's this godly wisdom that comes from God that is the only true wisdom, then how then do we receive it? In order to receive true wisdom, an important reality has to be accepted. That is, God's wisdom, listen to this, is either revealed to you or it's hidden from you. We have to accept that reality. If our human minds cannot get us there, if we can't obtain the wisdom of God through our own mental volition, if we can't get there, then it has to be revealed to us. Something outside of us has to show it to us. God's wisdom exists, but to some it is revealed, and to others it remains hidden. Men can do nothing to earn it or discover it. Nobody in this room, through your mental capacity, discovered the wisdom of God. Not one person. Take the brightest theological minds in the room, and not one of them discovered the wisdom of God. It was revealed to you. 
God in his sovereign power has seen fit to reveal his wisdom to some. And listen to this. And to keep it hidden from others. To some it's a mystery. It's hidden. It's foolishness to them. But for others, it was destined to be understood. That wisdom is the cross of Christ. And it is either believed upon by faith or it's rejected as foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now, imagine with me for a minute, if you will. Try to imagine what it would be like to be born blind. To be born blind. Spending your whole life in darkness. Whatever age you are now, just imagine that you're the same age you are now and that you've spent your entire life in darkness. Taking in sounds, filling the objects around you, smelling the odors that come from the kitchen, tasting the flavors of all kinds of variety of foods, feeling the warm summer breeze, excuse me, breeze and even the touch of a loved one. But all the while, it is all accompanied with utter darkness. Then imagine one day being made to see. All that you had known was suddenly colored. Not only would there be utter joy at the tapestry of colors that you could suddenly see. Just imagine looking around this room and being able to see for the first time. That neon jacket by Nate Cleves would would stand out. Right? Colors would contrast other colors. Things would catch your attention that you had never seen before. There would be an overwhelming rush of emotions as you see things for the first time, as you see things exposed by light. Your understanding of everything would change. You would have new insights to sounds that you had heard your whole life. And these objects that you felt now had more detail to them. And the smells and flavors, you could suddenly see where they came from. You would be able to see the expressions from loved ones whose tender touch you had felt your whole life. And you would have a new level of understanding like you had never understood before. That's exactly what the gospel does to the heart of an individual who has never known true wisdom before. True wisdom is not something that can be discovered by the human mind. It can only be revealed by God. The same way that all the things that a blind person would see for the first time. They could never understand until their eyes were open. Only by the grace of God does the Holy Spirit reveal true wisdom, giving us the ability to, according to the the text, search the deep things of God, the very depths of God. Access, listen to this, to the depths of God. Think about the reality of what's being communicated to us in this chapter. The There is access to the very depths of God through revelation. And that revelation, that revelation that gives us that access can only happen through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit 
has to do his good work of opening our eyes to see Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not as foolishness, but as the very power of God. Paul then uses an illustration to explain how it is that wisdom of God could ever be received. Look with me in verse 11. It says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. See, Paul is saying, unless you choose to share your mind, no one will ever know what you're thinking. Well, if you've spent any other time with human beings, you know this is important. Husbands and wives probably especially know this. If you don't tell me what you're thinking, I have no way of knowing, right? Angie and I have had that discussion more than once, right? And I'm not speaking from her to me. I'm saying from me to her. It happens both ways, right? I have no idea what you're thinking if you don't tell me. There is no way for anybody else in this room to know what you're thinking, to know what's in your heart unless you express it. Paul's using this example to say you cannot know the heart of God. Unless the Spirit speaks to you. You cannot know the heart of God. Unless the Spirit speaks to you. Communication is essential to understanding. Which is exactly why God communicated his love to us. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's made that known to us. Through the work of the Holy Spirit. The same is true for God's wisdom. Unless he chooses to reveal it. It will never be received. In order to receive the true wisdom of God. We must receive the Holy Spirit himself. You can hear about the cross and Jesus crucified all day long, but unless the Spirit acts upon you, it's white noise, it's foolishness. We must receive the Spirit in order to understand the gospel. But Paul says in verse 12, now we have received. So he's speaking to the saints. He says we have received, not the Spirit of the world. You're born with that. You don't have to receive it. You got it. But you have to receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, we have, we've received it, but the spirit who is from God, so that, why? Why should we receive the spirit of God? That we may know the things freely given to us by God. What has he given us? His salvation, himself. He's given it to us freely. We didn't discover it, we can't earn it. It's been freely given. And the only way we can know that is if the spirit enters in. Wisdom is received only through the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot know the wisdom of God. Look with me in verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. And then listen to this. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the spirit of Christ. I want to make a few quick notes about these verses so that we can wrap up this contrast of 
God's wisdom and man's wisdom. Paul stated so succinctly in last week's text that there's only one very simple message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing more, only Jesus all the time. However, though only one simple message is preached, there are two very distinct responses. You either receive that message or you reject it. Verse 14 says the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit. He's clearly rejecting that message. You either hear that message and receive it, or you don't. You don't understand the message preached. Therefore, you won't accept it. According to verse 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. This explains why the world doesn't understand Christians. It doesn't understand the church. The fundamental reality of the believer is so foreign to the unbeliever. As we watch the news and we listen to all the things that seem so crazy to us, We have to be reminded that as they peer in from the other direction, they think the same thing. They think we've lost our mind. They pity us because we're following after some ancient religion that is foolishness to them. But God's word tells us in these verses that saints have the ability to praise appraise all things because they can do so with a spiritually informed mind. Our understanding of all things is enlightened by the knowledge of God's sovereign plan. We get the big picture from before creation, God's existence, why God created, the redemptive plan that we can follow throughout Scripture. We get to see Jesus Christ come, condescend in the form of a man and be crucified on the cross at the hands of wicked men like we read in Acts 2.23, all because of the predetermined plan of God. We get to see all that because the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts and minds and has revealed himself to us. The world sees none of that. It's ludicrous to them. But we can appraise all that. Our understanding of all things is enlightened by God. But remember, this world is operating like a blind person. From a state of blindness. They're missing a realm of knowledge that would change their entire understanding. Now I want to make a clarifying remark about verse 15. Perhaps you you read that whole verse. And you see where it says, Yet he himself, talking about the spiritual man, is appraised by no one. Let's be clear that This means the world is incapable of understanding a believer. Paul is not giving us license as believers to not be held accountable by other people, right? That's not what God's communicating. To be appraised by no one means the world can't appraise us. They can't get it. They don't understand. That's not a license for us to do whatever we want to do and that nobody has a say-so. But Paul then asked a rhetorical question in verse 16 that I'd like for us to answer. All right? The question is, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Well, the obvious answer, I hope, in 
chorus, if we all were to say it out, is no one, right? We would be demonstrating godly wisdom if that was our response. No one. And if you're not sure about that, go read the book of Job. You can start, you can just read one chapter, read chapter 38, and your, your line of thinking will be corrected. The point Paul is making here is that by God's Spirit, we do have access to the depths of God. Listen to this. To the very mind of Christ. That's not, that's not misspoken. He wants us to know that we have the mind of Christ. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit who has entered in. Which leads us to our next contrast that Paul draws out in the text. The first contrast was man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. And how we see so clearly the the difference between the two. We either receive the gospel or we reject it. We're either believers or we're unbelievers. But the second contrast, which we're about to dive into in chapter 3, is that of mature believers saints and immature believers also saints look with me in chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 he says and I brethren could not speak to you as spiritual men as to men of flesh as to infants in Christ I gave you milk to drink not solid food for you are not yet able to receive it indeed even now you are not yet able for you are still fleshly For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one man says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? The contrast between spiritual men and men of the flesh, or men of flesh, is the contrast that we're looking at in chapter 3. The contrast between mature and immature saints. Now I want us to look a little closely, a little more closely at fleshly saints sometimes the word is used I don't really care for it but you probably heard it before called carnal Christian now Paul's very clearly speaking to believers he says brethren that's one dead giveaway and the other is he calls them infants in Christ but in Christ nonetheless Paul said I could not speak to you as spiritual men But as to men of flesh. Now, again, these are saints. They're saints choosing to operate in the flesh. Well, let's go back to our illustration of imagining that we were blind our whole life and then suddenly we're able to see. Imagine being able to see again for the first time. All the things that we mentioned, the color, the detail, all those things. And then imagine after being able to see like that, that you would choose then to take a blindfold and put it around your eyes and wear it all the time. That would be nonsensical. That would be insane to be given vision, sight for the first time and to be able to take in all of that and then to intentionally, to purposely put on a blindfold and then to continue to live life as if you can't see. That's the ludicrous decision that we make as believers when we don't depend on the Holy Spirit. 
This is, however, exactly how the saints in Corinth were acting. They were trying to lay hold of the message of Jesus and him crucified while simultaneously hanging on to their worldly philosophies. It was like being given sight and then putting the blindfold back on again. It made no sense. They prized their worldly philosophies. They thought of themselves to be wise. And they were a little surprised when they met Paul himself. And he was not more persuasive than he was in present. In the present. When he was present with them, he wasn't very persuasive. They were bummed by that because the great philosophers that they knew were persuasive men. Here is feeble old Paul with this message that contains so much power. But his presentation was weak. So Paul's reprimand that we find in verse 1 of chapter 3 must have stung them deeply. These were hard words to people who took a great deal of pride in their philosophies, in their wisdom. That they, the wise philosophers, were being referred to as fleshly infants. As a matter of fact, he continues to address their spiritual immaturity, saying that they were not yet ready for the deep things of God. The very thing they believed themselves to excel in. They weren't ready. He says, you're still too fleshly. Their fleshliness is evidenced by their strife and quarrels that he draws attention to. Again, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, the strife and, and quarrels aren't what made them immature. It was proof of their immaturity. This is a very dangerous place to be because repentance is necessary here. If we have been given the Holy Spirit, if our hearts and minds have been enlightened to the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and we choose to embrace the philosophies of this world above the power of God, then we're putting a blindfold on intentionally when we've been given sight. Now let's take note again of several things here that we find in the text. He says, because of that, I had to give you milk, spiritual milk. Now milk doesn't denote that Paul was watering down a version of the gospel for them so that they could understand it. That's craziness. That's not what Paul was communicating. As he told us at the beginning of chapter 2, he had one message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't water that down for anybody, nor should we. So what does he mean by spiritual milk? What does he mean by gave them milk? I think he's talking about their ability to digest what was given to them. Their ability to digest the deep truths of God. Again, Paul had one message. It was the receiving that revealed. It was the receiving of that revealed message that came in many different forms. When we become sidetracked with lesser things than Jesus, than lesser things than the gospel, we're given evidence to our, our immaturity. Listen to me. I'm speaking to us. Speaking to me, who is before you this morning, to say that any of us can embrace this insanity. Any of us can embrace this foolishness of having Jesus Christ and the gospel and wrapping a blindfold around our eyes. We're all susceptible. I'm not speaking to just anyone. I'm speaking to us. When we become sidetracked with lesser things, we're putting the blindfold on. 
And when we become sidetracked with lesser things, we're exposing, we're giving evidence the way that the people of Corinth were when they began to quarrel. They were giving evidence of their immaturity. We do the same thing. Saints of grace, don't get sidetracked with non-gospel arguments that are springing up all around us in the world. Let the world argue about all the nonsensical things they want to argue about. We got one message. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Quit getting tied up with all this other junk. Take the blindfold off and see again. God's giving you clear vision and it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't get mixed up in all the arguments of the world. I'll be pointed here. Leave politics alone. Spend more time listening to political pundits than you do the word of God. You're exposing your spiritual immaturity. And we could pick, that's just one thing, we could pick a thousand things that we want to go and waste our time on. I'm certainly guilty, I'm not pointing a finger at anybody, I'm certainly as guilty as anybody in this room of picking lesser things and spending time on it, putting a blindfold around my eye when God's given me himself and the gospel. Don't get sidetracked with non-gospel arguments that are springing up all over the place. And that includes in the church that lead us away from being centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. Those arguments only give evidence that we're living like mere humans rather than according to the spirit. Those arguments create divisions in the church rather than unite us. And Paul warns us very strongly in this chapter about being the cause of division. Really, it starts back in chapter one. Don't be the cause of division. It, again, it's not the root problem. Your spiritual immaturity is. You should repent of that. You should repent of that immediately for your own soul's sake and for the unity of the church. Take the blindfold off and remember what God has opened your eyes to see. That's what fleshly saints do. But they're spiritual saints that God addresses in this text too. In contrast, the spiritual saint never wanders far from the cross. It was the very character Paul was putting on display among the Corinthians. Paul was de demonstrating to them what a mature saint looks like. He only had one message all the time, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't have time to be sidetracked with immature arguments because he was preaching Jesus. A mature saint sees through the wisdom of this age and the meaningless arguments that I already mentioned are springing up all around us and maintains a precision focus on Jesus. Again, I'm talking to myself. A mature saint, like Paul, is calling for unity among the believers of the local church, found only in the gospel, above adopting some worldly motto or philosophy. A mature saint knows how to apply the gospel in a way that strengthens the saints, himself included, herself included, as one body with no division. And I think that's Paul's appeal to the church at Corinth. They were arguing over who belonged to Apollos or Paul or Peter. They had missed it all. Divisions were arising because of their immaturity. The church was falling apart and sin was entering in in all kinds of ways. All because of their immaturity. All because the gospel ceased to be central. Because they weren't correctly applying true wisdom. Look with me in verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants 
nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. I want you to notice four things about the heart of a mature saint. This is where we're in. This is our application. We want to we correctly apply God's word. Number one, a mature saint applies gospel wisdom by emphasizing the work over the worker. A mature saint applies gospel wisdom by emphasizing the work over the worker. Paul was just a servant through whom you believe. That's all he was. That's how he saw himself. Paul did not say, he didn't think for a minute there was anything special about Paul. He saw himself as only a servant through whom the gospel flowed. That was it. It was the work over the worker. He took no pride in himself. Only the work that God had called him to. Paul was more concerned that the Corinthians believed the gospel than he was concerned for who they received the gospel from or who they were baptized by. Gospel ministry is bigger than the servant. God's redemptive plan existed before us, and ministry will continue long after we're gone. And Paul knew that. Do you want to be a mature saint? Then be a servant of the gospel. Just be a servant of the gospel. The second thing that a mature saint does, a mature saint applies gospel wisdom by emphasizing God's work over the servant who labors. Now, that may sound almost the same. Paul's not downplaying the labor of the saints here when he says, but God calls the growth or it is God who causes the growth. He's simply emphasizing the message of the cross. He's emphasizing the character of, and power of God. We must die to ourselves. Listen to this. To our ministry aspirations sorry, and comparing ourselves to others. Stop doing it. Don't compare yourself to anybody else in this church. He made you all different, and he's given you each a ministry. And the important thing is not you, but the ministry that he gave you. So emphasize God, the cross, and his power. Do you want to be a mature saint? Then just preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. Always emphasize God. The third thing that a mature saint does is a mature saint applies wisdom by emphasizing the importance of unity over self or unity over position. Paul, again, is downplaying the work of planting or watering when he says he who plants and he who waters are one. But rather, he is emphasizing unity, oneness that is necessary for the local church. The reason unity is important is because it ultimately shows that we are all focused on the cross rather than anything else. The best way to get unified is all look at the cross. When you look at the cross, you're humble. You consider others more important than yourselves. And you have one message. Do you want to be a mature saint? Just be humble. Care more about the unity of the saints than your own agenda or particular ministry. And then the fourth thing that I want you to see that a mature saint does, a mature saint applies gospel wisdom by emphasizing who we belong to, that we belong to God. Paul makes a plain statement when he says, we are God's fellow workers. 
We belong to God. Yes, we're fellow workers together in the ministry, but our belonging to God unifies us in such a way that no arm or leg of ministry gets emphasized over the other. God has chosen us for himself and to labor for his glory. When this becomes our high aim, the room for disagreement diminishes. When God is our all in all, when the gospel is central in the life of the church, allegiance to lesser things disappear. Immaturity disappears. Divisions disappear. And the Holy Spirit is pronounced. And when the Holy Spirit is pronounced, go read the book of Acts. See what God does in the life of the church. That's my appeal to you today. Do you want to be a mature saint? Belong to God. Belong to God. Nothing else. Let nothing else have your allegiance. Belong to God. Let's pray together. Father, we plead that the person of the Holy Spirit would be pronounced in the life of this church, in each individual believer's heart. Reveal to us the truth of the gospel so that we might live as unified, matured saints belonging to God and to serve Him by preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified on us. Make us those kind of saints. Father, I pray this morning if there's any unbelievers that were, are among us. And a lot of what was communicated sounds foreign to them. Father, I pray that they would cry out to you now. That you would open, your eye, open their eyes. That their blindness would be removed and they'd see the beauty of the gospel for the first time. Father, I believe you can do that work in the heart of anybody in this room. So we're praying for it. And we're asking these things in Jesus' name. Amen.